so last week, last week we did two things. We, we looked back, uh, first we looked back over the course of our lives. We looked, over the, looked back over our lives and we figured out, um, we figured out that we are connected. We're connected with, uh, we're connected with the story of that person that took the opportunity to invite us to know Jesus. That person that introduced us to understanding that there was something greater than what we were currently experiencing. And so we looked back and we thought back and we prayed for and we were encouraged by knowing that there was that one. That one that stepped out and said, there's a God that loves you. There's a Jesus that died for you. And we identified them. And the second thing we did was that we identified our one. The one that we have determined that God has laid on our hearts and our minds that we would step out, invite, encourage, and say, I want to give you an introduction to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I want to introduce you to my Jesus. Now, if you're anything like me or like most people, this has left you with a few questions. Anyone there? You're like, okay, I've identified that there's somebody that I probably need to talk to about Jesus, but I have a concern. Namely, how am I to bring Jesus up? Anyone there? Okay, good. Okay. Wasn't just me. <laughs> what about this? What do I do? What do I do if they say no? Well, what do I do if me asking this question, introducing them to Jesus and telling them about what role Christ has taken in my life, what if that actually is that straw that breaks the relationship? What do I say? What do I do? And that will lead you down the road of saying, you know what, the pastor said by the end of the year, so six months, Six months, that's plenty of time. I'm not going to think about it for a while. Okay, maybe it's not that. Maybe I'm going to say, you know what, I'm going to research it. I'm going to pray about it. Anyone ever use praying about it as an excuse not to do something? Okay, thank you for your honesty. Um, so we're praying for it, and we're, gonna, you know, we're looking for that perfect opportunity. And we're saying, okay, it's going to be the right absolute time. In fact, I'm, I'll know it's going to be the time because I'll look up at that person and I'll see a little halo above their head, right? And you kind of figured out how you're telling God that he's going to tell you that it's time for you to do what he's already told you to do. Because here's the thing, in our lives, and, in, uh, and honestly, I think all of us are this way, we have some of those tasks, some of those assignments, some of those things that, that we really look at and we... We really say, you know what, I'm going to put this off. I'm going to put this off to the very last minute. Any April 15th filers in here, right? Okay. For some of us, though, it's like it's not that we do it intentionally, but we just naturally do it because it is so heavy. It is so big, and, and we walk through, and we're like, every day, oh, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. And it's just natural, but truly we just lacked intention. In life, there are greatest successes and the most meaningful relationships that we have, they are built on purpose. They are built 
by us intentionally, purposefully being driven, making sure that we give meaning and opportunity to the things that we want to see succeed, to the relationships that are important to us. So last week, we saw that Jesus had kind of this purpose statement. It's found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He said this about himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And, and, and we really kind of put our hat on that and said, listen, if I'm truly following Jesus, then I should say this is supposed to be the result of my life that I am seeking. That means I'm looking for those who don't know Jesus to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus plainly told that he was talking to Zacchaeus and those within earshot what his purpose was that he came to seek and to save. He came to look for those who don't belong to him and invite them to life. Jesus modeled that purpose, which means following Jesus means that we live on purpose. So truth be told, though, that kind of a thing, that, that understanding that our purpose should mirror the purpose of Jesus that our relationship with God is more about just believing that he exists. It is about following and doing as he says to do. That's where we got stuck. Because truly, truly that, that, that's different. It costs something. I mean, we're thankful for those in the past that kind of stepped out and, and said the things that they said. The, the person that stepped out and, and said, hey, let me tell you about Jesus to us. But we lack the confidence that God, that God would use us to help someone in their own life. So we heard we heard what was said about doing what we can do, right, and then trusting God to do what only he can do. But to be honest, we step back and we go, I, 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 it's not that I doubt God, but I doubt me. Right, we, we landed in this spot where, yeah, God is the creator of this world. He holds everything together. He created me, has a purpose, a plan, but that plan did not include me because I can't do it. So honestly, what we've decided, what we decided is that God can't use us. Or maybe worse than that, maybe God did use us. Maybe there's a few people that would look to us and say, you know what, they're the reason that I came to faith in Jesus. But we came to that point in our life where we said, you know what, I've, I've served long enough. I've been in church long enough. I've been around this long enough. And you know what, it's somebody else's turn. When we decide that God can't use us, we decide that God is limited by our weakness. Don't let that sink in for just a second because I think that's probably one of the more essential things that we could ever understand as people that follow Jesus. Because the very moment that we find opposition, we say that God can't use us. 
Doubting that God can work through us says more about your belief in God than it does about your doubt in yourself. When you say, God, you can't use me, you're saying, God, you're not big enough, you're not strong enough, you're not powerful enough, you're not all-knowing enough. You're saying something about God and you're not truly saying anything about yourself. So have your excuses. Have your excuses make God weak in your eyes? Because following Jesus means that we move past belief into purpose. It means that we move past seeing Jesus as only for my benefit and for my comfort into taking his command to go, to baptize, to teach. Taking all of what he said seriously. Following, it requires making ourselves available to what God is doing in the world. And I'm thankful that we're in the moment of time where we're not having to kind of figure out this, who's this Jesus? Is he really Messiah? Is he not? I mean, because, you know, I, I always paint myself as the person that said, you know what? If Jesus were in front of me and I was a disciple, I would never doubt him. Anyone else there? You're like, oh, I'd never doubt him. Yeah, I, I lie to myself sometimes. And we find ourselves oftentimes acting as though we don't have to deal with our own nature, right? And that sometimes we're actually not that purposeful. Sometimes we actually don't do what God says because, truth be told, we don't want to. Luke recorded an account of people being purposeful, of being intentional, and trying to just get somebody in the presence of Jesus. Have you, have you seriously gotten to the point where you want to get somebody in front of Jesus? And you're going to take whatever means is necessary to get them to hear about the grace, the mercy, the love, the, the power over sin that you find in Jesus. Well, there's an account in the book of Luke, and, and these people, they were acting on what they knew to be true of Jesus. They knew that he was a man that was doing great works. He was healing. And they had a friend that was in need of some healing. So they hatched a plan. They had a plan that was a, it had a very intensive purpose. It was to get their friend to Jesus. Look with me in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. As Jesus was teaching, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they were sitting there, and they had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was on Jesus to heal. And behold, there was a man bringing a man a, on a bed, a man who was paralyzed. These men, at that moment, they were carrying their purpose. These men were carrying on a mat their friend, and their friend was, was the, the very epitome of their, of their purpose. And I, and I wonder, I wonder for you, what is it that drives you? 
What is it that gets you up and gets you moving and stop just talking and start investing, inviting, and being a person that moves forward with purpose? For some of us, we have families that have developed these purpose statements, a mission statement. Do you have a fam- are you a family that has a mission statement, a purpose statement? It might be embroidered on a pillow. It might be, you know, on the wall. But it basically kind of sums up what you are about. Okay, maybe this. You, you work for a company that has a mission statement. Anyone have one of those? Come on. Companies from the 90s, right? That's exactly what you did. We may not actually make anything worthwhile, but we have a mission statement, right? That's kind of how it went. And so they, they write down, the, they spend all of this money creating this purpose statement, Right? And then they get it printed on a mug and on a T-shirt, maybe even on a pillow. Who knows? It hangs on the wall in your office. But do you have a purpose? More than that, do you have a purpose that is worth pursuing? Do you have a purpose that God has placed on your heart? Not Not just this purpose to go out and make something, but a spiritual purpose to grow, to become. To be exactly who God has placed you to be. So last week, several of you shared that your one, that one that God had placed on your heart, that you would be able, that you would be looking for an opportunity to share, to invite, to know who Jesus is. They were a family member. They were a family member that you very much so wanted to invite in to knowing and understanding who Jesus is. So do you have a kingdom dream, not just a dream for any old thing going on in this world, but do you have a kingdom dream? Do you have a dream for you, for your family? Do you have a, have a dream that, that is not tied to this life? Do you have a dream that is not tied to just some success goal in your organization, to an amount of money in your bank account? Do you have a goal that is not tied to this life? But these men, they developed this this understanding, this expectation that this man, that they were carrying on this mat, this man could, if he was in front of Jesus, have his life changed because they knew what Jesus could do. They believed that Jesus could change their friend's life. They thought, maybe, just maybe, Jesus will do something amazing for our friend, we'll call him Matt. I'm a dad, that just comes out. Okay, Jesus could do something amazing for my friend. (laughs) Wesley just got it. They took a risk (laughs) because they had a greater purpose for their friend. And so continuing on, and they were seeking to bring their friend in and lay him before Jesus. So do you have a desire? Do you have a desire for your friends and your family to know Jesus? Do you want your kids to know Jesus? Do you want your aunt, your uncle? How many of you have a parent that you want to know Jesus? Or you have your grandkids, your spouse, your in-laws, your brother, your sister. You have all of these people that are connected to you by family. And they need to know Jesus. Do you have passion? Do you have a passion for it? Do you think about it often? Do you pray for it? 
So here's probably the hardest question of the day. Is that desire great enough to make you act on purpose? Is that desire great enough to have you move to action? Because in this realm, good intentions, they don't get the job done. Good intentions don't get the job done. This is that tipping point, right? It's where things change. It's an an adjustment that I have to make in my own heart and mind, an adjustment I have to make in myself. I'm either going to live on purpose or I'm going to be apathetic because purposes push through and apathy makes excuses. So Luke recalled in his account that these men had encountered an obstacle. And they found no way to bring him in because there was a crowd. If you can imagine the crowd, they were there at the door pressing in just trying to hear what Jesus was saying. So instead of trying to push through the crowd and go through the door, they went up on the roof. And they let him down with his bed. Through the tiles. In the midst right before Jesus when there seemed to be no way through the door, when they were the ones that were going to give up, they saw an opportunity to say, you know what, hey, Matt, we tried. I'm sorry, dude, it just didn't work. They saw the door was closed. And that's where we give up, you know, because we have this theology of the closed door, right? If I encounter a closed door, obviously God's not in it because God only opens every single door you believe that, that's a bad theology. That's a bad theology. Because not every obstacle is a sign from God. And we shouldn't raise the flag of surrender because we merely tried a door handle and it was locked. Closed doors should open our eyes to look for a window. To look for the stairs, to climb up on the top, to find another path. To, because the path doesn't always go through the door, the one of least resistance. So a question for you is what obstacles have derailed you in sharing from being on purpose with this person whom you have claimed is your one? When you think about your one, what has kept you from inviting them to come and be part of a body? What has, come, what has prevented you from introducing them to Jesus? So what would it look like? What would it look like for you to dig a hole in the roof? And when he saw their faith, when when their faith was seen in their actions, when he saw their faith, he said, man, Matt, your sins, they're forgiven you. And at that, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this man who blasphemes? Who can forgive sin but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them and he said, Why do you question in your hearts? So which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, Rise and walk? but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. Luke 
recalls this. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and he picked up what he had been laying on and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God. They were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The friends got more than they had bargained for. They got more than they had bargained for because they were really looking for a way for their friend to be able to have a life that was a little bit more full. But Jesus, he can do miraculous things, and he did miraculous things. But the first thing that Jesus did was he, he recognized the true need of the paralyzed man first. Jesus brought forgiveness before any external change. People thought that Matt's need was primarily external. But Jesus shows us that the primary need of the people whom we love the most is inside. Our hearts need to be changed because this is our deepest need. In what ways has Jesus transformed your life? Think on it. How has Jesus transformed your life? Do you desire to see that type of transformation in others? We need to learn to ask God to do what only he can do in the life of our one. We need to ask God to bring transformation continually into our hearts. So what obstacles have been introduced in your pursuit of telling, inviting, and sharing. What obstacles have been introduced that you need to overcome? I think if we're being honest, maybe one of them is our own pride. When that person shared with you about Jesus, did they have to overcome yours? Did they have to overcome your pride, your circumstances, those things that were going on, the you-don't-understand kind of things? What other things got in the way? Maybe it was that you didn't want anything to do with it. But yet, that person who loved you enough kept persisting. When the door was shut, they dug a hole through the roof. I want, to, I want to close today with, with a passage from a book called People Sharing Jesus. It's by Daryl Robinson. And I, and I want you, and I, and, I, and I kind of warn you honestly, that this story, it might wreck you. So I'm just going to read it. It's going to be on the screen. I'm going to try my best to not mess this up. You ready? Here's what he said. Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen, and lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes and filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and they talked about their call to fish. They talked about the abundance of fish and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means. 
They defended fishing as an occupation and declared that fishing is to always be the primary task of fishermen. So continually they searched for new and better methods of fishing, for new and better definitions of fishing. Further, they said, the fishing industry exists by fishing as fire exists by burning. They loved slogans such as fishing is the task of every fisherman. And they sponsored special meetings called fishermen's campaigns and the month for fishermen to fish. They sponsored costly nation and worldwide congresses to discuss fishing and promote fishing and hear about all the ways that you can fish, such as fishing equipment, fish calls, and whether there had been any new baits that had been discovered. These fishermen, they built large and beautiful buildings and they called them fishing headquarters. And the plea was that everyone would become a fisherman and every fisherman would fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. The board hired staffs and appointed committees and they held many meetings to define fishing and to decide which streams should be thought about. But the staff and the committees, they did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built, whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. And over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, how to approach and to feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers, they did not fish. They only taught fishing. So year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and were given fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters, which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and they were sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. Like the fishermen back home, they engaged in all kinds of other occupations. They built power plants to pump water for fish and tractors to plow new waterways. They made all kinds of equipment to travel here and there to look at fish hatcheries. Some also said that they wanted to be part of the fishing party, but they felt called to furnish fishing equipment. Others felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so that the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt simply letting the fish know that they were nice, land-loving neighbors, and how loving and kind they were. That was enough. 
After one stirring meeting on the necessity for fishing, one young fellow, he left the meeting and went fishing. The next day, he reported that he caught two outstanding fish, and he was honored for his excellent catch and scheduled to visit all the meetings um, all the meetings possible to tell people how he had done it. So he quit fishing in order to tell about the experience to other fishermen. He was also placed in the fisherman's general board as a person having considerable experience. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen, yet they never fished. They wondered about those who felt that it was of little use to attend the weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, they weren't following the master who said, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Imagine how hurt they were when one day a person suggested that those who didn't catch fish, they were not really fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet, it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? Is one following if he isn't fishing? Are you following if you're not fishing? So enough of that talk. Let's go fishing.